So I'm going to be reading Exodus 2, 23 through 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Good morning, everybody, and Happy New Year. It is great to be back. As Kerwin said, we miss being here, and uh, we had a great Christmas here, and then we were off for a few days to Pine Cove's family camp, which we'd never been to before, but I've got a college buddy who now runs that, and... um, he and I did a truce to not tell any college stories while we were there, and um, he invited me to come out and teach, and so we got to go as a family for a few days. It was really cool. We never experienced anything like that before. I mean, you get there, and you get settled in, and they have counselors who will take your kids, and you just play games and have fun, and then they come back, and then you play, and then they take them again. It's wonderful. In fact, we told Davey that it was children's church that she was going to, which now is kind of backfiring. I think she may be a little traumatized, but... Um, we had a wonderful time. It was so good. Um, it was kind of funny, though, because if you've been in the Pine Cove world before, I was just a Canacuck person, so I've never been to Pine Cove, but at Pine Cove, everybody has nicknames. And when you are a staff person, they sit around, and you tell your story and stuff, and they give you a nickname. So we show up to our table that night, and the two people that are going to be taking care of our kids for that week are named Slay and Nom Nom. <laughs> we're, we're really going to hand our kids to Nom Nom. Yeah, we did. We didn't even think twice about it, but um, it was a great time, and I was teaching there on Genesis, and so if you remember last year about this time, we did about eight weeks on Genesis, and we looked at the storyline of Genesis through the lens of the fig leaves that Adam and Eve put on and how sin affects our relationships, it affects our worship, it affects our wholeheartedness, and what God did through the family of Abraham to bring people back to himself. And as I was planning, earlier in the fall as I was planning our sermons for this year, I thought, you know, these books, these Old Testament books never get taught on uh, because one, they're difficult, and two, they're super long. I mean, if we're going to do like a verse-by-verse of Genesis, David would be graduating by the time we were done. And so people skip these, but I think these, these... especially these early books are like foundation stones for the New Testament. It's like, yes, we're not going to pretend like we're caught in the book of Genesis, but at the same time, you can't really understand all that Jesus has done until you know what's happened in Genesis. And so because of that, I decided, let's just kick off this year with Exodus. And at at the risk of all the places being rented for next year, we're going to do Leviticus at the beginning of next year. Now, I don't know if we'll do Leviticus, but these big books, Genesis, Exodus, Isaiah, Deuteronomy, are foundational for us. And so, for the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about these select scenes from the book of Exodus that teach us that God didn't stop in Genesis with this family. He's actually extending his promises out, continuing his work to bring all of humanity back before him. And so one of the commentators, not a Christian actually, says of the book of Exodus, the Exodus is the only thing that ever happens in the Bible. And I want to start there because that's hyperbole. There's all kinds of other things that happen. But it's an insight into why we study the book of Exodus. Because the shape of Exodus, the story and the narrative of Exodus, shows us how God likes to tell stories. 
See, God has preferences for the way that he directs the world. And maybe the most prominent one in the Bible is that God loves to tell rescue stories. He loves to tell stories of bringing his people out of bondage and out of slavery and out of oppression and into a land where they can dwell with him forever. And so if you look through, this this sounds very elementary, but if you look through the Bible, what you'll see is the Exodus story everywhere. People who are crying out to God from oppression of other people, oppression to sin, oppression of sickness, and God hearing and answering and rescuing and providing miraculously and bringing them before him to where they can dwell with him again. And, and, And it's one of those things where once you see it, you'll see it everywhere. It's the same pattern over and over and over again. It kind of reminds me of uh, John Smith at Oklahoma State. One of the things they always said about John Smith, he's a wrestler, now he's a wrestling coach, is that he would always take you down with a single leg, and he would always pin you with a half, which if you were a part of wrestling, those are the things they teach you on the first day, the first day of wrestling. They'll teach you how to do a single leg. It's the easiest takedown. It's the one that you watch out for. But he was so good at it. The simple, regular practice of the basics that he went on. I think he became the first wrestler ever, and maybe the only one still today, to win six consecutive world and Olympic championships with a day one move. That's what we're going for in the new year with the Exodus. See, Kerwin mentioned, and I love that nobody raised their hand, or if you did, a couple people raised their hand about these New Year's resolutions, because at some point you start to realize, and I was doing a little research on this this week, only 9% of people keep their resolutions. And I talked last year, I, I won't give you the statistics again, but there's a, there's a falling off the wagon day in March where everybody basically goes back to living the way that they were. And the point of a New Year's resolution is great if we could follow through with it, but what's even better is to go back to doing what we should have been doing. Not to necessarily add something, not necessarily to pretend like we're a different person, but to go back to the basics. And the basic we're starting out this year is this story. God rescues his people, brings them into his presence where they can worship him wholeheartedly. That's what we want for our lives and for this year. So the book of Exodus begins in Genesis, okay? Genesis and Exodus are like part one and part two. It's like a prequel and a sequel that go together. And you know, Moses writes down the first five books, the Torah, and the first two books, Genesis and Exodus, are really like the two-part series, the beginning of all things and the beginning of this new nation, Israel, that has come out and met with God at Sinai. They've been rescued from Egypt, and now they're going to move into the promised land with him. And Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are sets of laws and narratives that are encompassed almost in the same basic time period as Genesis and Exodus. So if you get Genesis and Exodus, you get a story of the history of the universe, the history of humanity, the history of Israel that sets you up to understand how God likes to deal with his people. And so whether you were here or not for Genesis or whether you've studied it or not, we've got to do a recap of some foundational things in Genesis to get into Exodus. So this is like in the Star Wars movies where you have the text run out at the beginning of the movie. You know, the empire is gaining ground and the rebels on Tatooine or wherever. That's what's happened with Israel. Things have gone way south. They started out in the garden with God, created in such a way that their highest fulfillment 
is to be face-to-face with God, walking with him, worshiping him. They're created and put into this garden of Eden. And if you remember, God creates the world, and then he creates this special area that's a mountain actually called Eden. And then he creates a garden within Eden. So we say garden of Eden, like Eden and the garden are coterminous, but they're not. In Genesis, you have this mountain that is called Eden, and you have this very special place within Eden that is the garden of Eden. And it's, it's amazing, if you were to read this as an Israelite, these words are so powerful as to what God was doing. See, garden in the Hebrew language and in almost all of these ancient languages means like a paradise. It means a place that a king would walk freely and talk and think and commune with his advisors. And on top of that, you have Eden, which this garden is a paradise, and Eden is delight. So you have a garden of his delights where they are experiencing God in his fullness. They are worshiping him. And do you remember what they've been given to do? To cultivate the garden, to work it and to keep it and to fill the earth. The original purpose of humanity is to worship God and to walk with him in such a way that that relationship and that glory spreads all over the earth. Eventually, the plan would have been that the the delight and the pleasure of the Garden of Eden would spread out across all the world, and it would be like Adam and Eve were in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. But of course, by page 3 of the Bible, things have changed. Sin has entered. They've broken their relationship with God. They've disobeyed. They've trusted in themselves. Their worship has actually shifted from God alone to something else. Self, pleasure, autonomy, godlessness, and Basically, the story of Genesis all the way up through Abraham is the world spirals out of control because sin is running rampant. It affects people's relationships. It affects their worship. It affects their families. It affects societies to where God wipes out with a flood all of humanity except one family. And after that, things go even worse than they had before. It's to show us that It's not going to be by washing the world clean. It's not going to be by dispersing the people. It's not going to be by casting people away from the presence of God. In chapter 12, we see that God himself is going to start to tell a new story and redeem humanity through the family of Abraham. Abraham is a pagan. He's an idol worshiper. And God calls him. He says, I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to bless you. And in fact, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you. So Abraham's family is the storyline from chapter 12 of Genesis all the way through the end, and you get to the time of Joseph. And in the time of Joseph, the people come to Egypt, which we'll talk about in a little bit, and they're planted there at the end of the book of Genesis. And the book of Exodus begins with the people of Israel now no longer just in slavery to sin, but in slavery to the king of Egypt. And as the book of Exodus opens, we see the two major steps that take place in Exodus. This is the story that God wants to tell. First, that he is a rescuing God. He is a God who hears his people's cry and goes and does something about it. Right? And this is, um, this is really huge for the boring parts of Exodus. Because if you've sat down and tried to read Exodus, what you realize is the people are out of Egypt by chapter 15. Okay, like if you've seen the Prince of Egypt, 
that, all, that whole movie takes place within the first third of the book. And that's the really exciting part. That's the part we're familiar with. The plagues, the Red Sea, all of that. Song of Moses in, in chapter 15, they are out of Egypt. But Exodus is 40 chapters. So there are 25 chapters left in Exodus, but they continue the theme. Chapters 16 through 19 are about going from the sea to Mount Sinai, where God had promised, we'll see this in two weeks, where God had promised Moses that he would bring his people back to worship him. Chapters 20 through 31 are the parameters and designs and templates and laws about worshiping God. This is where it gets kind of tedious, if we're honest. How many rings should you have on the curtains in the temple? How many you know, stitches should you have in the priest's garment? This is tedious stuff, but it's all about God rescuing his people and bringing them in a condition to dwell with him. I read a commentator this week who's talking about chapters 20 through 40, which with one little interlude, 32 through 33, is all instructions for the temple. He said, to us, this seems like a a long-forgotten list of things to do and parameters and building plans, but for Israel, this would have been looking back almost like the love letters that you write when you're dating before you get married. To anybody else, they are boring and awkward and about stuff that doesn't really matter, but to you, there's so much infused in those everyday kinds of things you talk about in those letters because it's the history of your love story together. And that, for Israel, is what the building of the tabernacle is. And when we get there, um, we'll, we'll spend several weeks talking about why God had such excruciating detail for how the people were supposed to worship him. But you get to the end of the book in 34 through 40, they make everything, they set up the tabernacle, and it ends bringing the arc of the story of Genesis full circle. In chapter 5 of Genesis, people leave the presence of God. Cain has slayed Abel, they go east of Eden, they're out of the presence of God. And the rest of the story is God starting his plan to bring them back together. And in the end of Genesis, Joseph, who is in Egypt, dies. And listen to the last verse of Genesis. It says, So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. This seems like a pretty pedestrian sentence until you realize, if you started at verse 1 of Genesis... And then you go to this one. Think about how different this is. No longer in the Garden of Eden. Now in Egypt, a foreign country, in in an oppressive country. No longer living forever in the presence of God, eating from the tree of life, but dead and buried. Not yet in the promised land that God had said he was going to bring his people to. In a coffin, planning to stay dead in Egypt. You go from total life in the presence of God, to away from the presence of God, death, and in some ways, being forgotten in Egypt. The curtains open in the book of Exodus where the people are, uh, there's a recap of what happens, and then the passage that Rayanne read for us this morning, the people are crying out to God as if he's totally forgotten them. But the story of Exodus is the tide begins to turn. In the passage we read this morning, when they cry out to God, God would have every reason to abandon them. They've abandoned their part of the covenant with God. They've turned their back on him. It would be just for God to forget them. But it's almost as if 
something begins to change in chapter 2 of Exodus, such that the whole story begins to pick up speed until when you get to the end of the book of Exodus. In chapter 40, verse 34, here's what it says. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This is the exact reversal. So they went from life in the presence of God to death in Egypt. And now death in Egypt brings forth life in the presence of God again. It's not the same this time. It's actually not in the Garden of Eden. It's in this wilderness tabernacle where God is now dwelling, present, and directing their steps towards the promised land. So our our question in Exodus is, how do you go from death to life? How do you go from feeling like God is abandoned to God in your midst? How do you go from sin, which has ruined a relationship with God, to God making a way for sinners to be back in his presence again? That's the storyline of Exodus. And and my argument is, that's the story God tells over and over and over and over again in the Bible. So as we kick off uh, 2024... I want to dwell on this theme for a minute of presence, because this is what all of Exodus is building to, is the presence of the Lord in their midst and the worship of his people. It's almost like Moses is teaching us what the one and two, the, the call and response of life is like, that God draws near to us in his presence, and we respond back with worship before him. And so I, I want to just give you four thoughts as we start into Exodus about God's presence in the new year. God's presence in 2024. Here's the first thing. God has promised his presence. God has actually promised you his presence. So we're not going to pretend, like I said, we're not going to pretend like we don't know how the Bible goes after Exodus. Exodus is a shadow of the great reality of Jesus who came and gave himself on our behalf so that sinful dead people in slavery like Egypt could wake up from the dead, and rise up and live in the presence of God all over again. And so through Jesus, this promise is realer for us than it was for Israel. Christ in us is more vibrant, more powerful, more personal than God in a cloud or fire or in the Holy of Holies or anything. In fact, Jesus says that the Spirit in us is more personal and more intimate than if he were standing here physically among us. Remember in John 15, he says, guys, trust me, it's good that I go away. Because if I go away, I'm going to send my spirit. And the spirit will dwell in you like the holy of holies. You will become a temple of the living God. And he will remind you of the truth. And he will guide you. And he will show you what to do. And he will draw you near to God. And he will convict you of sin. And the work that's done in your soul because of the spirit will be the closest presence you can get before we go into glory with God forever. We actually live in a time where we are more privileged than anyone who's ever lived before to be in the presence of God at a more intimate, personal level 
than even the Israelites experienced when God dwelled in the tabernacle. So for us, the promise is even greater than it is in the book of Exodus that God will be with you. We just came out of our series in Matthew that we did all of last year. And you remember Jesus' parting words for his disciples and for us in the gospel of Matthew is, go into all the nations, make disciples, baptize, and teach them to obey, and behold, I am with you always even to the end of the age. God has promised, and as Kerwin put so well this morning, he has bound himself, even though he can never lie, he can never fail, he can never go back on his word, he promised to us, I will be with you. I will be with you. God has promised to be present with us through Jesus Christ. Now, the moment that leaves your mouth, you have to go back and think, but what about the times it doesn't feel like God is with us? What about about the times where it feels like God maybe is kind of distant? and isn't really holding up his end of the bargain? What, what about the moments where you're crying out like Israel was, and you're like, is anybody listening? Is anybody going to answer this prayer? Is anybody going to intervene? Is God, if, he, if he's so good and he loves me so much, is he going to stop this from happening, or is he going to redeem this? And I was thinking about this this week, and God's presence in the Bible, the testament of the whole Bible is God is always present. But we don't always sense his presence the same way. Kind of, to me, it's kind of like when you think about the sun. When you're on the beach, you are very aware of the power of the sun. You're putting on sunscreen. You can feel the heat. You know you're about to get sunburned. But I've never been sunburned on my face like when I'm in the mountains. But there, you don't feel it. You're not aware of it. You're not putting on sunscreen. You're not feeling hot. But man, if you come in at the end of the day and your face and your cheeks and your lips are burn because the sun was just as present then, but you didn't notice it. The sun was the same, you're the same, but the environment is different. That's how the Christian life works. God is constant. He is present. He is faithful. And we as Christians, no matter what we feel, we are just as righteous, just as saved, we are just as approved of in Christ as any other time. But the environment makes all the difference. And, and I would go one step further to say sometimes it's the cold mountain seasons where you look back and you can feel the effect of God's presence even more in hindsight than when you feel it in the moment. There's going to be moments in your life this year where you don't feel God, you feel the absence of God. You feel the cold of the lack of heat from God's presence. And it'll only be later this year or next year or 10 years from now when you can look back and see that God was present with you all the way. You know, we see this in the story of Joseph because Joseph had an incredibly difficult life. I mean, if you were to write up Joseph as like a psychological case study, this guy, so his dad has this rivalry with his brother to where it splits their family apart. He, you know, comes in, his brother comes in from hunting, and he's starving to death, and he needs a, a bowl of porridge, and, and, and um, Jacob goes all Gordon Ramsay on him and kicks him out and steals his birthright, and their, their feud lasts for like 10 chapters in Genesis. It's one of the defining features of this family. So you would think after all that that Jacob would be like, you know, I'm going to do a little reflection here. I'm not going to do things the way my dad did and my mom did. But instead, he has all these kids, picks one as his favorite, 
showers him with love and affection, gives him the technicolor dream coat, makes sure all the kids are jealous. And what do his brothers do? They sell him into slavery. They get rid of him. They want to kill him, actually. And Joseph doesn't really help this. I mean, he, he kind of lives up to his family of origin issues in the sense that he's the one at the dinner table like, all you guys are going to worship me one day, right? <laughs> Not good to say. Not a great thing to tell your brothers. And if we were looking from a human perspective at the story of Joseph, we'd say this is a story of dysfunction. What happens when sin gets so intermingled in family issues and personal issues and the path of your life that he goes from bad to worse to good to worse several times in his life. He goes from being sold into slavery to Potiphar's house to falsely accused and imprisoned. He has a moment where he thinks he's going to get out and he gets forgotten. Then he arrives in the king's service and he's head over all of Egypt, but a famine comes. And then his brothers come back. And the whole story from our perspective would be one of trials and difficulty. But you know how Moses tells the story in Genesis? You know what the refrain of Joseph's life is? Five times in the Joseph story we read, but God was with Joseph. God was present with Joseph. And I love the, the frame of what happens to Joseph in chapter 39 of Genesis. So if you go back there, what's happening is his brothers are opportunistically selling him to a band of people who are going to Egypt. And what happens is he gets brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, who's an official of Pharaoh, he's, a, he, he's like a cabinet member, and he's the captain of the guard, and he's an Egyptian. He bought this group of people from the Ishmaelites, and one of those people is Joseph. And so Joseph comes into his house. And you think, this is actually a stroke of really great luck, great providence here, that he, instead of being put to hard labor, he's bought by Potiphar. This is awesome. And in that moment, in verse 2, it says, the Lord was with Joseph. Okay, that's, that's the beach. At the end of the chapter, this very same chapter, he gets falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. Potiphar believes his wife, and he throws Joseph into the king's prison. And there he is in the prison. And in verse 21 it says, but the Lord was with Joseph. But the Lord was with Joseph. The highest of highs, the lowest of lows. The Lord was with Joseph. God has promised you his presence. He didn't promise that you always feel his presence in a uniform way but we can bank on the fact that God has promised his presence for us. Number two, God will be present with us through his plan, through his plan. One of the things that jumps off the page in Genesis and Exodus is no matter what God's people do, God is working his plan. He has a plan for his people. He has a plan for Abraham. He has a plan for the nations. And no matter what they do, God is working his plan. You know, sometimes the passage we read this morning in chapter 2 of Exodus, sometimes people get all bent out of shape about this passage because it's like the people cried out, they were in, in slavery, and then it says, and God heard their cries, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham. It's like God is this forgetful dolt up in heaven that had this written down somewhere. He's got this contract signed with Israel somewhere, but he'd totally forgotten about it. And Israel is now languishing. He's like, I've got to do something about this. But if you read Genesis into Exodus, you realize that's not what's happening at all. God was working in Israel far before Israel was groaning to God. 
Okay, one of the things you get completely convinced on if you read the end of the Joseph story is that God had taken initiative to provide for the Exodus before his people were even enslaved. Before his people were in trouble, before his people were enslaved, before his people were crying out to him, what was God doing? He was making arrangements for what he was going to do to rescue them. So you see at the end of the Joseph story, the thing that leads right up to where we are in the beginning of Exodus is (laughs) Joseph, when he confronts his brothers, his brothers are terrified that he's going to take revenge on them. But they don't understand that Joseph has been looking at all of life through the lens of God's presence and provision, such that when you get to Genesis chapter 45, which is where Joseph kind of comes out with this, and he tells his brothers, hey, it's me, Joseph. Look at what he says. In verse 2, they, he weeps aloud. He can't contain it anymore. And he says to his brothers, I am Joseph. And his brothers could not answer, for they were dismayed at his presence. So he said to his brothers, come near me, please. And they come near, and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now... Don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me here to preserve your life. Think about that revisionist history that's going on here. The famous line in chapter 50, we'll get to in a minute, what you intended for evil, God intended for good, but look at the detail work of what God was doing. You sent me to Egypt to die. You got rid of me. But God was using me. God had a plan for me. You actually, in a short-sighted way, didn't think you would ever need me again, but God knew that a famine was coming. And he sent me here before you to preserve your life. Look at what he goes on to say. For the famine has been in the land these two years. And guess what, guys? There's five years of famine left. You think it's painful now? You're you're not even halfway into this famine. And God, in verse 7, sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep you alive for many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Think about that. That is a radical way to look at your life. You did something that was miserable at the time. Like We're not downplaying that Joseph's life was difficult. But what Joseph sees is, but God was doing this to work his plan. It goes all the way back to when God promised Abraham that he would have a great nation, he had no kids, right? He, he, he's old, his wife is old, they are not going to have any kids unless God directly intervenes, but God promised that they would have a family. God promised that they would be a great nation. Well, God provides for them then, but what if all these people die in the famine? The promise has failed. The family doesn't exist, but God was honoring his promise, you're going to be a great nation. So a famine's coming. People are going to die. This famine's going to be destitute. But I sent Joseph ahead. Sent him to the breadbasket of the world at this point. The only place in the region that has enough grain to sustain itself is Egypt. And he gives a vision, not just to Joseph, to the Pharaoh to say, a famine is coming. You better start storing up grain. God has affected the entire regional economy so that he can save his people and honor his promise. To the point that at the very end, that famous line where Joseph says in chapter 50, verse 15, when, when his dad dies, his brothers think, okay, he, this was just an act. He, he was just being nice to us while dad was alive, now he's going to kill all of us. 
And so they saw that her father was dead, and they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us now and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. And they still don't get it because they do this, your father gave us this command before he died, right? Like, hey, you know, dad said, it's not in the will, but dad said, say to Joseph, Be, please forgive your brothers. And Joseph weeps and spoke, spoke to them, and he said, behold, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, for I will provide for you and your little ones. A person, the only person that can ever say something like that is a person who's convinced of God's plan in their life, that God's plan will actually supersede anything anybody tries to do to their life. Number three, God will be present as he calls you all in. That's the message of Genesis and Exodus is God wants your total worship. He wants your whole heart. He wants all of your desires, all of your satisfaction to find their end in him. When we say presence, when, like God's presence in your life, my first thought always goes to this little bitty book that some of you have probably read called The Practice of the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. Anybody know this book? It's a great little book. It's a spiritual classic. And uh, Brother Lawrence is a monk in the 17th century in, in a little area outside of Paris. And he actually fights in the Thirty Years' War. He enters uh, monastic life kind of late in life, and when he gets there, the only job that's open is to serve as a cook. And so he goes in, he starts serving as a cook in this monastery, and he has this injury that happens to his leg, and so the abbot of the monastery reassigns him, and he finishes out his life as a sandal repairman. That was his job in the abbey, was fixing everybody's sandals. And people started to notice that there's something different about him. Even, even among the monks, he had something about him and his relationship with God that was different. In fact, several monks commented, and when, when the practice of the presence of God was put together after his death, they included, if you get a little edition of it, they included these conversations about him by other people that knew him. And, and what happens is it sets you up for why they put this book together. These people were like, even in the monastery, I mean, people were pretty holy in the monastery, but something about Lawrence was different. And so they ask him, they say, what is the secret to being that close to God? What is, the way he starts it is, you've asked me to write how the habitual presence of God was found. Isn't that a great question? I'd love to know the answer to that. So he writes this, and he says, what happened was I read all these books, I listened to people teach, um, I, I talked to different people about it, and there were all these different ways of practicing the presence of God. Like, um, the equivalent for us would be kind of like all the New Year's stuff that you get. You're like, what's going to fix my relationship with God is a new this, you know, whatever it is. If you're a journaler or a calendar or an app or whatever it is, all these tools and the gear and the stuff and the techniques. And he's like, but underneath it all, one thing stood out. Here's what he says. The resolve to give all for the all. That's the secret. The resolve to give my all for the all so that after having given myself wholly to God to make all the satisfaction I could for my sins, I renounced for the love of Him everything that was not Him. And I began to live as if there was nothing but He and I in the world. That's powerful. The secret to the presence of God, Lawrence says, 
is to give your all to the one who is all. To make sure that there's not any part of your life that isn't turned over to him. Now, this by no means uh, necessitates that you be a monk, okay? Like, it's easy to look at this and be like, well, yeah, of course, if I was a monk, I'll just pray all day and read, but your sins would follow you into the monastery. And if you read any history, you realize sin can follow you into a monastery. The difference is the wholehearted worship of God, whether you're in a monastery or at work or in your home, here, anywhere on the earth, is your heart fully surrendered to him? Do you have other things that are competing for your worship and your affections? Do you view your job in such a way that at the core, you're not just striving to please people, you're striving to please God. You're trying to treat people in such a way that's honoring to God. You're trying to make money, which in and of itself is a great thing, so it could be in the service of God. I love this line at the end where he says, I began to live like there was nothing in the world, no one in the world but he and I. It's like the picture of sitting at a table with you and God and understanding that every day that's going to be the root of your relationship with him. But, but the picture of sin is somebody else or something else pulls up to the table. It reminds me of the time that Laura and I were in Kansas City when we were living there. I had a really good friend come and visit us. And we were at this restaurant. We are at this little pizza place up in the river market in Kansas City. And he had gone to the bathroom and had to come back. But what had happened was he stopped one section too soon and without thinking about it, just sat down at the table. So we're like, you know, 10 feet away watching this happen. And he sits down. And it was remarkable how long it took all of them to figure it out. Like, the, he didn't belong at their table. They didn't know him. It's just like he sat down. They were talking, just kind of injected in. And we're just sitting there like dumbfounded, like, you idiot. You know, like, you don't know those people. And then, and then when they do realize, standing up and looking around and coming back to our table, we laughed about it. But how many of us are in that situation right now? You, you have somebody or something at your table that's actually taking away from the relationship you have with the person you're sitting across from. Whether that's in your quiet time in the morning, you're distracted. You're worried, you're anxious, you're holding a grudge, you're unhappy about something and you're withholding it. Or going throughout your day, you have this shadow worship that goes on. In the mornings you worship God, but all day long you worship self or power or image or something like that. That's a third person at your table. And at some point what God will do, his, his presence will bring us to the place where we look up and realize there's three people at this table, not two. There's somebody else here. The presence of God in your life is, is going to be him constantly calling you all in. See, here's the thing is we think that the presence of God is always pleasant. It's not. The Bible describes that the presence of God can feel like a sword that is piercing between the bone and the marrow, that is laying open all people to the sight of God. The presence of God sometimes in your life this year is going to feel miserable because it's kicking somebody out of your table. It's taking a sin in your life and exposing it. It's taking a relationship that's unhealthy and starting to breathe life into it. It's taking worries and doubts and fruit of the flesh that have been coming up in your life and pruning the branch for you to be more devoted to him. So the fourth thing is God's presence is going to surprise you. God's presence is going to surprise you. I thought this week, just a little thought experiment, what would it be like, I wish we could do this, what, what would it be like to go back and read the book of Exodus for the first time? 
You don't know what's coming. You don't know the story. You have no idea what's about to happen. How surprised would you be at what God did? I mean, think about it. If you're an Israelite, we have kind of this just so, well, yeah, he's going to part the Red Sea and the plagues. And, no, but that, you know, the Israelites are going to be spared and all of this. They're going to make it to Mount Sinai. They're going to wander around for a while, but they're going to get to the promised land. None of that was known to them other than God telling them that that was going to happen. Imagine if you could go back and read Exodus just from the beginning to end. How surprised would you be by what God decided to do to bring his will to pass in their life. I mean, think about it. He has this Hebrew baby who gets cast into the Nile. Chance of survival, very slim. Like, even Moses' parents knew there's not a good chance that he's going to survive this. You make a little basket, you send him out into the river, and you just pray that God will do something. He does survive. Who finds him? You can even write fiction this good. Pharaoh's daughter finds him. How crazy is this? And not just that, his sister is there hiding, and she jumps out and is like, would you like me to go find a Hebrew midwife? And, and, and the daughter's like, sure, great. So he gets to grow up in his parents' house, but he's the son of Pharaoh. He's the grandson of Pharaoh in Egypt. Grows up, knows all the customs of Egypt, but has a little murder issue that happens. Goes out of Egypt, tending sheep, story over. I mean, you kind of would just die in obscurity. But... He goes to this well, and there's these young girls there who are being attacked. And he, just out of the goodness of his heart, decides to help them. They take him home. Their dad, Ruel, his name means companion of God. I mean, like, what? Gets married, has a kid, burning bush. God calls him. He's going back to Egypt. All this happens in the first three chapters of Exodus. I mean, amazing. You couldn't think of something like this if it weren't for God's plan. And it, I mean, it goes on and on and on. All the plagues and stuff and the great escape from Egypt and the parting of the waters, that's become so cliche for us. We use that expression. We think about that. God's going to have to part the sea. God parted a sea. I mean, who would have thought of that? He could have done that a million ways. He could have teleported them. He could, they could have walked across, but God, by the breath of his mouth, parts them. I mean, there's so many surprises in the book of Exodus. And God's going to surprise you in similar ways this year with his presence. Because none of us are wise enough or smart enough or creative enough to fathom the plans that God has for us. It says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind could even conceive what God has planned for those who love him. And he loves you. And he wants to draw near to you with his presence this year, and he's going to show up in places you would never expect. He's going to bring people into your life you, you never would have thought. He's going to provide for you in ways that you can't explain. You're, you're going to suffer and feel the presence of God in a way that, that actually doesn't make any sense to anybody around you. That's what God is going to do with his presence in your life. So we're going to throw ourselves into knowing the presence of God through this book of Exodus for maybe 10 weeks at the beginning of this year. And I want to end challenging you to think about the presence of God in your life by the last words from Brother Lawrence in this book, Practice of the Presence of God. So this is from his deathbed. And uh, two days before he dies, this is what he writes. Let all of our employment be to know God. The more one knows him, the more one desires to know him. And as knowledge is commonly a measure of love, 
the deeper and more extensive our knowledge will be of him, the greater will be our love. Wouldn't that be amazing that that would be a banner over your year this year? To love and know God and to know God in such a way that makes you love him more and to love God in such a way that makes you want to know him more. I pray that that's the presence of God in our lives this year. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful that we can even come to you now through praying. If we were back in the Exodus, we'd have to send a mediator to go before your presence at the tabernacle. But instead, here we are, we can just open our mouths, and you are there. You listen to us, you provide for us, you are present with us. Father, we thank you for that. I pray that this year, 2024, as we start to study this, you would just show us new things about your presence in our life through your word, through your people, through your spirit. God, would you be present with us? Would our love and our knowledge of you work together to grow us closer to you? Father, we love you, and we are so grateful that even as we gather here this morning, we are witnesses to the presence of God in this community. And in our worship, in the things that you've done, in the stories that are represented here, Father, we look back at your faithfulness to us, and we forge on into another year of your presence. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're going to celebrate communion this morning, and uh, the way we do that here is we're going to stand and as Mark leads...